It's uh, a pleasure for me to have uh, uh, Mr. Josh Barnett today come and to uh, preach from our epistle today. Josh does such great work uh, with our young adults, and it's a privilege for me to have a brother in the Reformed faith that I can trust and uh, depend upon uh, in the pulpit. Uh, and so thank you, Josh, for being here today. Josh is our people's warden, by the way. He's the one who keeps the people all in check, uh, and he will do that today uh, for us through the Word. So come, Josh, and share with us. When people ask what a people's warden does, it is our joke to say that I walk up and down and bang my stick on the bars and lights out, lights out, lights out kind of a thing. But that's not what a people's warden does. Well, hello. It's great to be up here at the close of our Advent uh, time, uh, though I am uh, very excited about where we're going to be going in the new year and the plans that Pastor John has for sermon series. Uh, and this particular passage really segues into that very well, so I'm excited about that. Uh, before I begin, a quick story. So some of our family is here from California. They're in town. And in fact, they are in this room, and some of you may have met them. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, while discussing uh, some churchy things with my brother-in-law, Matt, who is a pastor, he told me that he thought that perhaps I could be very useful and work in the church. And I kind of replied something like, yeah, well, you know, whatever, man, I don't, you know. But, but Matt continued on with some encouraging words, and I know that I replied with something along the lines of, Okay, okay, sure. But, you know, I, I, I could see that. But the problem is, is I'm, I'm just not a preacher. You know, I, I don't see myself in that role ever. It's just not for me. You know, I'm not going to preach. So in light of that conversation, it's fun for me to have Matt sitting there while I'm up here proving myself wrong or possibly right. We'll see. Let's pray. Gracious God of our fathers, who set the heavens and the earth in order and who sustains them by your goodness and grace, take hold of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us ever more into the image of Christ. Help us to walk in newness of life on this day and in the days of this new year to come. And now, God, like the psalmist prayed, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as I looked at this passage in Galatians and I was reading what others had said about it, I realized that Calvin and I were in agreement about a particular quality of Galatians chapter 4. For Calvin said, Whoever made the division into chapters has improperly separated this paragraph from the preceding. So with that in mind, and so that we might be helped, I just want to go back exactly one verse into Galatians 3, verse 29, where Paul writes, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I want to sit there for just a second before I go on. 
You see, we need this verse, I need this verse, to make sense of the rest because it locates the Christian. Chapter 3, verse 29 is one of those verses that points at the Christian and says, this is where you are in the story. This is who you are. These are the benefits that you enjoy. Paul says, being in Christ, we are heirs. We have an inheritance that has been promised to Abraham's children. So in Christ, we are Abraham's children. The divine covenant is fulfilled in Christ, and we enjoy the blessings of that. Now maybe some of you are familiar with an old uh, Sunday school children's song called Father Abraham. It was sort of a glorified um, hokey pokey that said, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I was singing that song in my elementary years, I did not understand the intricacies of covenant theology. I didn't know how to read the Old Testament and find Christ there. I didn't even realize that this simple lyric points to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, perhaps I've come a little way since I was eight or nine, years old, and I have much further to go still, but the truth is there in that song. I am a son of Abraham, and so are you. Praise the Lord. So Paul has been instructing the Galatians of who they are. He has located them in the midst of God's redemptive story, and in chapter 4, he now reminds them of their relationship to the law. And if you're familiar with the letter of Galatians, you'll know that some suspect Teachers had come into the church and they had begun to teach that salvation was gained by faith in Christ plus a work of the law. The Galatians were being pulled in the wrong direction and Paul needed to put them back on their course. So he goes into great detail about their relationship to the law and the fact that they do have a relationship with the law. But what is that relationship? Well, Paul likens the law to a guardian. He compares those under the law to children. Israelites under the sacrificial system were like children waiting for the promised um, inheritance. And Paul says that this child is no different from a slave. In verse 3, Paul says, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, typically when we hear that kind of those kind of words being used, principles of the world, you know, we tend to think about, you know, maybe the negative effects of sin on the earth, or perhaps we think about the devil himself, but this is not what Paul has in mind here. He is simply comparing the natural to the supernatural. By that, we mean that Paul is now comparing the old covenant of ceremony with all of its nitty-gritty realities of blood sacrifice to the promise of the supernatural new covenant in Christ, whereby we enjoy the benefits of the one true sacrifice for sin. Paul is saying, listen, before Christ, you were as slaves. Don't fall back into that kind of thinking. You need to locate yourself in the story. You are no longer like slaves. You are sons. You are children of the promise. And all month we've been steeped in the mystery of the incarnation of Christ's first advent 
And Paul brings it to our mind right there in verse 4 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And I want to slow down here for a bit because Christmas is full of God's son, born, and it should be full of that. This is worthy of the whole season of Advent reflection. But this particular part, under the law, is crucial to our understanding of what Christ actually came to do. And in the glorious history of what Jesus actually did, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, there is no part, there is no part that can be taken out without mortally wounding Orthodox Christianity. These are the essentials. And I want to talk about how important the essentials are for just a bit. So Carly and I recently moved to a quieter part of town. We were by the mall, where it was quite busy with noisy traffic and a lot of cars, but now we're kind of uh, situated between Rutland and East Kelowna, right on the creek. And now about a month or so ago, I had some nice folks knock on my door to tell me a bit about some of their beliefs. And that in itself is, is a story, uh, but it's not this story. This story is my response to that encounter personally, how I responded uh, with some of my time was basically to just dive really deep into the, the theological understandings of Mormons and Watchtower and lately even Islam. And let me assure you that each of these groups believe in Jesus. And they all believe that he was totally and completely real. But each of these systems of belief wholeheartedly, completely twist or totally deny one or more of the basic understandings of who Christ is, of what he did, and where he is now. And in our young adults Bible study, let me say it right, the CCKYABS, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15. And if, uh, chapter 15 is a fantastic chapter for developing a true system of Christian belief. In chapter 15, Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now listen, as I combine that uh, uh, portion of 1 Corinthians 15 with our portion from Galatians 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now it's really starting to sound like an early church creed containing all the essentials of true Christian doctrine concerning what we are to believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the beliefs are important, and we don't want to skip even one. We know Christ was born, but what does it mean that Christ was born under the law? Christ being born under the law in order to fulfill all righteousness, was required to keep and fulfill every line, every jot, every iota of the Old Testament's moral, civil, and ceremonial requirements. This is known uh, in the theological world as the active obedience of Christ. It is enough to say that Jesus lived a perfect life, but it is helpful to understand what his life and his words say about the law and what they say about us. 
You see, in John 8, with the woman caught in sin, we see that Jesus begins to to, uh, challenge the understanding of the civil law. And when he questions whether or not the woman should be stoned, he's challenging the Pharisees' understanding of that law. And he's bringing his kingdom to earth. In Matthew 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you you have broken the moral law of God. You have committed murder in your heart. In this instance, you see, Jesus didn't actually change the law. He didn't make it harder to follow. He said himself, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't change the law. He changed on that day the people's perception of themselves. See, most non-murdering people will reflect on the fact that they are non-murdering people and they will feel pretty good about their non-murdering selves. But Christ challenges those notions of innocence, and he shows the impossibility of all who were born under the law, of any of us keeping the law. You see, God's moral law shows our need for Christ, but we cannot keep it perfectly, and if we're guilty of breaking one, we're told we're guilty of breaking them all. In Christ's death, he fulfills the Old Testament partial understanding of atonement. He becomes the sacrifice once for all. Never again will blood need to be spilled for the sins of God's people. It is finished. It boggles my mind as I think about that, how any other religion would change even one aspect, one piece of Christ's work in his birth, his life, his death, and his life, because to do so robs them of the the blessings of Christ's work. You see, if we we change even one thing, if Jesus is born of Joseph, he is born in sin. If he's merely a pretty good teacher, he has not lived a perfect life. And if he hasn't died for us on a cross, our sins remain unpaid. And if he didn't rise again, our preaching, Paul says, is in vain. So give me all of Christ and all that he accomplished on my behalf, and pray his Holy Spirit never let me go, but draw me ever closer to the rock of my salvation, for there is hope in no other. Christ was born under the law to fulfill all righteousness and to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Commenting on this verse, uh, Calvin says, Here we must observe the exemption from the law which Christ procured for us does not imply that we no longer owe any obedience to the doctrine of the law. For the law is the everlasting rule of a good and holy life. Now to preach Galatians and find myself preaching the law is an interesting thing uh, for sure. Because here we have Paul writing to a group of Christians who are hounded by these legalist agitators who would have them add works of the law to their faith in order to be justified. But that's the thing. We are never justified by works of the law. This is Paul's point in stressing that Christ was born under the law. He fulfilled its just demands and to purchase us out from under the law's condemnation. We are free from its condemnation but we are not free from its commands. But I should clarify 
Here in the 21st century, we are not living, we are not in a pre-Christ Israelite civil uh, municipality. Those laws are fulfilled by the establishing of Christ's kingdom, and that kingdom is not of this world. And we are not obligated to offer sacrifice for sins, but only to place our faith in Christ's, the once perfect, full sacrifice for our sins. But there, right before us, written even on our hearts, grounded in the very character of God, remains his holy and perfect moral law. It's never changing. It's never abrogated. It's certainly not abolished by Christ, as he said himself. And we said it together during Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. His testimony is sure. His precepts are right. His command is pure. And his rules are true. And we shouldn't forget Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law. But how do we get there? How do we get there to that place of delight? When we read in verse 6, it's because we are sons. Because you enjoy all the benefits and advantages of being adopted children through Christ, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Of being baptized in the Holy Spirit with fire and sealed to God by the Spirit's power, we can cry with all our heart, Abba, Father. And with love in our heart, we should cry to God, Father, write your law on our hearts, we pray, that we might not sin against you. So we are no longer slaves to the law, no, but a son, a son for whom the law is a delight. And if a son than an heir through God. We are heirs according to the promise. As I was writing this, this seemed like a a naturally well-timed place to end. And then I remembered that tomorrow is a new year. And I don't know about you, uh, but I don't don't really get into New Year's resolutions uh, very much. I have nothing against them, uh, but I don't really get into them. But Jonathan Edwards got really into them. And if you've never read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, I recommend them. And several years ago, I read one that for whatever reason has stayed with me. I've not forgotten it. Edwards wrote, Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. And I know that if we can locate ourselves in the reality of our position before God and Christ, we will feel feel more fully the love of our Father as his children, and our love for his law will increase. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.